He spends his first 40 years in the palace of the king. He rejects that. And then he winds up spending the next 40 years of his life on the run in the wilderness. 40 years on the run in the wilderness, hiding out from the law. And then after that, he spends the last 40 years of his life leading a bunch of rebellious people in circles around in the wilderness until all of them die and he himself dies and is buried by God in view of the promised land but never entering it. 120 years of his life and other than about three weeks of it, pretty much struggle. Yet, in spite of all of this, we don't call him a failure. We, we call him one of the greatest leaders in the world. We don't use his name as a cautionary tale. We use his name as an inspiration to us. He is not known as a failure. He's known as a friend of God. In fact, God himself calls him a friend. His name, Moshe, Moses, Drawn from the water, and yet he spends so much of his life in places without water. The wilderness, the desert, the wasteland. He spends so much of his time thirsty. And at some point out in the wilderness, he has a son. And the name that he gives to his son, Gershom, becomes the name of our sermon series for this new year, for 2021, here at Bridgeway. Zipporah bore Moses a son, it says in Exodus chapter 2. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. A stranger in a strange land. Why is the life of Moses filled with such struggle and hardship? Why is the life of Job filled with such struggle and hardship? Why is the life of Daniel filled with such struggle and hardship? Why is the life of so many of these great men and women of faith, Elijah, Jeremiah, David, why are their lives of so many people of God filled with struggle and hardship? Why are we Strangers in a strange land. (laughs) Why is my own life so filled with struggle and heart? Why do I have to struggle? Why does my faith sometimes seem so hard? Why are people so broken and often so mean to me? Why is this world so empty? Why is it that no matter what I do and no matter what I find that makes me happy for a few moments, I still have this nagging doubt. I have this vacuous chasm at the heart of who I am. This this raging, nagging emptiness. Why don't I fit in with this world around me? Why does something always feel off? Like, Like not right. Why am I a stranger in a strange land? If you stick around with us for the next six months or so, we're going to be exploring that question because it's a question that Peter asks in his book to the church, 1 Peter, 
Peter's first letter to the church, not necessarily to one specific church in one geographical, historical location, but, but rather a, a letter to all churches everywhere. It's a general epistle. And so it's a letter for us, Bridgeway Community Church. And it's a letter for you, wherever you go, wherever, whoever, whatever church you're a part of. It's God's word for you, First Peter. And so, stranger in a strange land. Let's just take a look at it together. First Peter, chapter 1. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I am writing to God's chosen people, living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you, and he chose you long ago. His Spirit has made you holy. And as a result of this, you have obeyed him, and you've become cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. This introduction to the New Testament letter, like most introductions to New Testament letter, kind of sets the tone for us. It kind of gives us a bit of a starting ground for where we're going to be going as we look at our series together, Strangers in a Strange Land. And so in our short time together, uh, we're going to just briefly take these very opening verses and we're going to look at them very quickly. We're going to pull in one of the last verses as well, kind of the, the purpose statement in, in a, First Peter chapter 5, verse 12. And we're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about who wrote this letter. We're going to talk about who he wrote the letter to. And we're going to talk about why he wrote the letter. Those are the three things we're going to start our series with. So first of all, uh, it starts out by saying this letter is from Peter, an apostle. So you know Peter probably. If you've read any of the stories about Jesus, Peter figures pretty prominently, usually because he's messing up, but he's, he's a pretty, pretty important person in the life of the early church, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and there's no real reason to dispute that this letter comes from him. For 1,900 years, that's what the church believed, and it's only been recently, the last 80 years or so, that some people, some of the higher critics have, have called that into question, and most of the reasons that they've given are, are pretty spurious reasons. If you want to do some research into that, you can certainly do that, but we're not going to really cover it a whole lot in our sermon time together, but I just want to give you four, four ideas and four things that you see in this book that, that just show that this is an early writing. That's, it's easily attributed to Peter the Apostle who lived and walked and worked and learned from Jesus. First of all, um, the, Christ's imminent return shows up in this letter again and again. Jesus is coming back, just like we sang this morning when he shall come with trumpet sound. And in the first century or so of the church, that's what they all believed. They thought it was going to happen like tomorrow, right? If you believe he's coming back tomorrow, then live like he's coming back today. They believed that. And then as time went on, the church got a little more complacent and they said, well, maybe he's not coming back tomorrow. Maybe it's coming a little bit later. But this, this book, First Peter, is all about Christ's imminent return. And so that marks it as being an early book, something that was early in the life of the church. 
Second of all, when you look at 1 Peter, there's a real simple church organization in the book of 1 Peter. There's no mention of deacons or bishops in this book at all. It's really quite simple and straightforward. Now, as the church spread out and as it grew larger, of course, the church needed to get more organized. And so some of our books have a little bit more church structure to them. Peter is, 1 Peter looks like it's an early book because of the, because of the simple church organization. Thirdly is the theology of the book of Peter. Peter is, it's a pretty straightforward book. It's, it's not a book that requires a lot of, of studying and, and, and covering in with other sorts of other things. It's a book that you could read to your child and they would understand it. Now the early church boldly and, and unapologetically proclaimed five things about Jesus Christ. When they, when they brought the gospel of Jesus to the world, there was five elements to that. I'm not going to tell you what they are. We're going uh, to save that for the six months that we're going to be in First Peter, and we're going to pull those five elements out. But, but let me just say that that also marks First Peter as an, as an early church, those five key ideas. And then if you're a student of history and you love the early church writers, guys like Eusebius and Clement of Rome and, and Polycarp, these guys from about A.D. 95 onwards, first, I mean, second century, they were quoting, they were writing letters to each other and to the different churches all over the place, and they were quoting from 1 Peter from A.D. 95 and onwards. And so we know this book is an early book. It's stamped with the authority of Peter the Apostle, and it was accepted and adopted into churches and, and deeply loved early on. Now, most likely, this book was also written by a guy named Sylvanus, co-written. Some of us have read books like that, right? If there's somebody who has a really great story, but maybe they're not such a great author, they get someone, they hire someone, or they get someone's help to co-write or to even ghost-write that book for them. That happens all the time. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Sylvanus is mentioned by name. He says, I've written and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas. Now, now mark that name, Silas, uh, who, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother, my purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Sylvanus or, or Silas. Names are interesting things, right? Uh, my formal name is Nicholas. Now, most of you don't refer to me as Nicholas. Uh, other people may be penniless, but I'm Nicholas. No, you call me Nick or hopefully Pastor Nick for some of you. But my formal name is Nicholas. My, my given name is Nick. And that's kind of Silas as well. His formal name is Sylvanus, but everyone called him Silas. And it's, we're pretty sure this is the same guy. Silas is the guy who went with Paul on a bunch of mission trips in the book of Acts. Right? Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi. He's an interesting fellow. He's mentioned in Acts. He's mentioned in 2 Corinthians. He's mentioned in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. In fact, Silas is one of the church leaders, one of the key church leaders who's chosen, only two people chosen to bring the, the, the edict of the Council of Jerusalem up to the church in Antioch. You might remember that from Acts chapter 15. So he's an important guy. And now here he is 30 years later with Peter in Rome, helping Peter to write this book. So those are the two marks that we see in this book, Peter's and Sylvanus's. It says it's addressed to Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
Those aren't even cities. Those are provinces. And this is a pretty broad area. You can see on the map that I've shown you that it's, it's pretty much the whole peninsula that now is the modern-day country of Turkey. So there were churches and there were believers scattered all over the place. And Peter's writing to all of them. Peter's talking in broad strokes about the health of the church as a whole. It's not a specific letter to a specific church to address a specific situation, like some of our books are. It's, a broad, it's called a general epistle, and it's for all of us, people who follow Christ in all sorts of places and cultures and circumstances. That's who the recipients are, the church as a whole. And finally, if you've got uh, five verse 12 in front of you. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you you have your app in front of you, you can see why Peter writes this letter. He says, my purpose in writing is to encourage you. To encourage you. I like that. You see, there's so much in this life that can discourage us. There's so many people that can be so hurtful in their words and their actions, and it's so easy for us to get down and out. And I, I just want to say that I am so thankful to so many of you at Bridgeway Church who have written and, and encouraged Elaine and I in the last eight weeks during this Christmas season. We've just gotten all of these notes of encouragement. We've gotten cards from some of you and emails and texts, and it's just been awesome. We've gotten gift certificates and, and, and donations that we don't, even, we don't even need, and we're just so thankful for you. They are all like little hugs from God delivered to us by God's people. You have been such an encouragement to Elaine and I lately, and I just I want to thank you for that. You have no idea how much it means. You ever had that happen to you? Like you're in a difficult situation, you're going through something and it's just, you're just overwhelmed by it and then somebody out of the blue, some angel from God sends you a card, goes out and buys you a card and sends it in the mail. Like some of you have been using the mail to encourage one another, it's awesome. And, and the words that they shared were like life to you. That's what Solomon says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Let's use our words to bring life and to encourage. Because if you've ever had that, you know what it feels like. A short card of thanks, recognizing your service behind the scenes when you didn't think anyone was even noticing what you did. Or, or maybe a word of hope because of a song that you chose or, or, or a story that you told or, or something like that that helped them. An email saying, you're needed and you've been called for such a time as this, to quote Mordecai in the book of Esther 4.14. I hope, I hope that you have received encouragements like that. But even more than that, I hope that you are giving encouragements like that to other people. That you are spurring each other on to love and good deeds, that you're choosing to find the good in situations and reminding other Christians of the high calling that we have as followers of Jesus. I hope that you are doing that, that you are building grace and mercy and hope and love in other people's lives through your words. And I hope that you're writing encouragements like that to each other and to your leaders, to the elders and the ministry team leaders here at Bridgeway. If you're doing that with your neighbors, remember some of your neighbors are going through all of this stuff, this pandemic, and they don't have the hope and the foundation that you do. So maybe you can give them a little bit of that. Write to your members of parliament. 
maybe even your prime minister, write those letters of encouragement and hope. Peter says, I wrote this letter to encourage you. It's so easy, especially in a time of pandemic. It's so easy to be negative. It's so easy to get angry and frustrated. It's so easy to lash out at sometimes at the people we love the most. Elaine and I had a fight last night I still haven't asked for forgiveness for. It's easy to do that. I want to encourage you to choose the higher road, to choose to encourage one another, to choose words of grace and hope and mercy. We have not faced persecution like these believers in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. No one is feeding us to the lions. No one's throwing us in jail for our beliefs. And yet we can form this habit of encouraging one another. We can form this habit now and spur each other on to love and good leads, just, just like Peter does in this letter. My purpose in writing is to encourage you. So how does Peter encourage the people that he's writing to? <laughs> Let's take a look. Uh, it's pretty hilarious. I'm writing this, he says, to God's chosen people living as foreigners. Basically, he says, here's my encouragement to you. You're all weirdos. <laughs> You're strangers in a strange land. You don't fit in. You know, when I was a little kid, I had, I had that sense. Like, like, I did not fit in. My classmates, they, they knew I didn't fit in. They, they loved to point it out to me. I often got picked on because I, I didn't fit in. And I, I don't think it was the glasses or, or the crooked teeth. I don't think it was my awkward social skills, although I had all of those things, thank you, Lord. I think it was my character. I think it, I think it was that they recognized that there was something about me that was different they didn't like it, and I wasn't always sure that I looked, liked it. But, you know, someone looked me up on Facebook a few years ago, and, and they said, I, I, I remember you as a teenager. There was always something different about you. This person wasn't a Christian when I knew them, but in the years since has become a Christian. And I'm hoping that that, that difference that they saw was my, it was my faith. It was my Christian faith. There weren't a lot of believers in the town that I grew up in. It was a small northern town, and it was pretty dark. I mean, a good weekend uh, in your teens was a weekend where you got so blackout drunk that you didn't remember the weekend. It always amazed me. Like, what? These are 16, 17-year-old kids that are getting so drunk they can't even remember the weekend. It was, it was a crazy place to grow up. Lots of promiscuity. Lots of drug use. The, the, the senior end of the high school, literally you could see the marijuana smoke after lunchtime. Lots of terrible things. And I got baptized when I was 11 years old because I knew, I knew that this world was going to suck me in. That, that that town and all of my friends who were living completely different than me, they were going to have their influence on me unless I chose a different way. And so I got baptized at 11 because I, I needed to show what side I was on. Because I knew there was a hell. I saw people living it. And so I chose heaven. I knew there was a God, but I also knew there was a devil because he was alive and well in my hometown growing up. So I knew I had to choose, and I did. I chose to be a stranger in a strange land. 
I chose to be a weirdo. I chose to not fit in with the world around me. Passages like this help me. John 17, 16. These are the words of Jesus. He says, My disciples do not belong to this world any more than I do. John 17, 16. Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith and all the heroes of the faith. And it says all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They didn't see it yet. And they agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. I don't belong here. Hebrews eleven thirteen. First Peter 2, 11. Dear friends, I, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners. You don't fit in. You're strangers in a strange land. You're supposed to be a stranger in a strange land. I've known that for a long time, <laughs> that I'm a stranger on this planet. I'm not supposed to fit in. I'm different. And the reason that I'm different, it's actually pretty cool. The reason that I'm different is because I've been chosen. I've been chosen. First Peter 1, 2 says, God the Father knew you and he chose you long ago. Chosen. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, We're always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation. A salvation that came through the Holy Spirit who makes you holy through your belief in the truth. Chosen. And the words of Jesus. If you don't hear anything else, this morning from this sermon, please hear your Savior because he's saying to you, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Jesus chose you. That's why you're different. Romans 8. We love Romans 8.28. Read on. Romans 8.29 and 30. God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And then having called them, he gave them a right standing with himself. And then having given them a right standing with himself, he gave them his glory. What a powerful passage of scripture. He gave us his glory when he chose us. And, and if you've ever had that ridiculous uncertainty of standing in the crowd with your eyes closed and your fingers crossed and your toes crossed as the two best players, right? The two people who are always chosen to be captain. The two guys that could play basketball or soccer or whatever sport it was. And they're sitting there and they're picking, right? They're picking different people on the team. And you're standing in the crowd and you're going, pick me, please, please pick me, please pick me. And you're going, don't pick me last no matter what happens. I don't care if you don't pick me first, but please don't pick me last. 
us. If you've ever been there, and I, I know some of you have always been the captains and God loves you too, but for some of us, it's just like we've been there in those moments when we're just hoping to be chosen. If you've been there, then, then, then you know what that feeling, you know, you know how to get, you know how it feels to get chosen to be on God's team. But you see, here's how you get chosen to be on God's team. You choose to be chosen. You choose to be chosen. It's like when the captain calls your name and says, I want you on my team, you could still sit there in the crowd and go, no, I don't want to be on your team, right? And that captain's going, what, you want to play with us? And you go, no, I don't want to play with you. And so captain's going to pick somebody else. Once you're chosen, you go and join the team. You choose to be chosen. This is the witness of of Scripture over and over again. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his Spirit has made you holy. That's what he's done. He's chosen you. As a result, you have obeyed him. You choose him, and you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the witness of Scripture over and over again, that to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives them the right to call themselves the children of God. You are already chosen by him, and you respond to that truth of being chosen by him, by obeying him, and by being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, you simply recognize who Jesus is in your life. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He he came to this earth on the very first Christmas, born as a baby to a virgin mother. He, He later gave up his own life. He died sacrificially on a Roman cross, and his death paid for your death sentence. He died in your place so that you wouldn't have to die that eternal death. Your sin penalty has already been paid by him. And now he's offering you forgiveness. He's offering you cleansing, hope, a glorious future, slate wiped clean, new life begun. And it all starts with a prayer like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you died for my sins. And right now, I'm turning from them. I'm turning from my sins, and I'm, I'm opening the door of my heart and the door of my life to you, Jesus. Like Pastor Darren said at the beginning of the service, you're the only thing that's worth choosing, and you're better than everything else. And so I receive you in this moment as my personal Lord and my Savior. You are my King. Thank you for saving me. Amen. Now, some of you people who've been following Jesus for a long time, you think, okay, I already did that years and years ago. But it's not a one and done sort of a thing. It's not just pay the entrance fee and then get into Disney World. No, it's not like that. I don't want to say, man, I pray this prayer every morning. I pray it several times a day. I'm a sinner. And I need you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me. And then I live in that. Because salvation is not the diving board for the swimming pool. Salvation is God's entire ocean for all of humanity in all time. 
Salvation is not just something that you do one and done. Salvation is something that you, that you accept into your life and then you work it out with fear and trembling as God begins to just draw you closer and closer to himself and as you walk through life and, and you start to experience some of that. It's his entire plan for your life. It's his entire plan for all of humanity, for all of human history. Through Jesus Christ, God offers all of humanity forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, God extends his offer of love to all of humanity. Through Jesus Christ, God chooses us. And so, when we're chosen, when we're chosen to become a part of that reality, we leave behind this present reality. We become strangers in a strange land. We don't fit in anymore to what's going on around us because, because we've got something better. We've got, we've got this in glorious eternal life. We become strangers in a strange land, no longer part of this world, and instead children of God adopted into his family, his children, Jesus' brothers and sisters. And that's what this letter, 1 Peter, is all about. We're strangers here, but we're family there. We're not supposed to fit in here. You're not supposed to fit in. Why are you wasting so much time trying? You've been created for a different reality. This temporary earth is no longer your true home, you're a resident of heaven. You're not a native on this planet. You're a foreigner just passing through. Strangers in a strange land. And because of this truth, Peter writes, we can experience more and more grace and peace. Even when this life gets difficult, we can persevere in hard times. We can endure the persecution that may come. We can keep at it even when we're discouraged. We can get up again when we've been knocked down. We can endure when the road gets tough. We can press on. Peter writes, my purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. What you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. So stand firm in this grace. This isn't just what Peter wants. This is part of our Bible. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's what God wants for you. God's word to you this morning is this, because you are a stranger in a strange land, because you are his child and part of his family, because of those truths, press on, stick it out, keep at it, don't give up, don't back down, press on. One of the men of God who encourages me a lot is, is a guy named Pete Briscoe. I listen to uh, I listen to his webcasts. I often go online and listen to some of his sermons. He's got some real good stuff on Right Now Media. So some of you access that through the church, Right Now Media, Pete Briscoe. I, I let God speak to me through some men of God, and Pete is one of them. In a Facebook 
post, he, he writes the following, and it, it's, it's rather long, but I, I think it's going to encourage you as we close this morning, just as it has encouraged me. Pete writes this. Here's a little encouragement for those of you that are slogging along. Standing on the side of a hill one day, surrounded by eager listeners, Jesus said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Pete writes, if that verse scares you, then you're missing the point. Jesus is not talking about the eternal destiny of individuals here. He's not saying that it's really hard to get saved and only a small percentage of humans will ever crack the code, find the gate in the thicket, and come out on the other side. Neither is he saying that it's real easy to end up in hell and that most people will. That's not what he's saying. Heaven and hell are not even in the mind of Jesus during this section of his famous sermon. In context, Jesus is trying to teach his followers an invaluable life lesson about intentionality. You see, it's easy to just allow life to carry you along. That's the wide road. It's easy to allow anger to fester. It's easy to allow relationships to die. It's easy to allow addictions to rule. This requires no energy or courage at all. Most people do it, and it leads them to their own destruction, broken homes, overdoses, outbursts of rage that children always remember, bankruptcy, and early avoidable death. But, Pete writes, there's a small gate to a narrow road. This way is much more difficult. It requires honesty, vulnerability, the courage to address the things in your life that are destroying you. Like, like opening yourself up to a counselor, telling someone how you really think, maybe for the first time ever. Maybe it's admitting that you're wrong to your spouse. Maybe it's working the 12 steps. Maybe it's choosing the narrow way. It's hard. And sometimes it seems like it goes on forever, but it leads to life. And by life, I don't, I don't think as Jesus is merely saying that the destination is life, like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. No, he's saying that the journey itself is life. It is both the destination and the journey. And the journey is where you will find the life that you've always wanted. And so for recovering addicts that are stuck on the fourth step, keep going Because small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. For wives, trying to convey your inner longings to your husband who seems to not hear you at all, hang in there. Because small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. For single dads, trying desperately to juggle too many responsibilities, stand strong. Because small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. One more day without sweets. One one more act of forgiveness. One more honest conversation. Small is the gate. And narrow is the way that leads to life. One more step on the journey of faith. One more time 
realizing like Moses, you're a stranger in a strange land. And that's a good thing. One more time, realizing that Jesus has chosen you and that that's a beautiful thing. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Press on, my friends. Press on because what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Stand firm.